You're listening to Radio Primavera Sound, proudly presented by Cupra. Welcome to Line Noise. From producing warm leatherette to founding Mute Records, few people have done more for electronic music than Daniel Miller, a genuinely legendary figure in modern music. His improvisational duo Sunroof have a new album out in February, and he was playing live and DJing at the recent Ombra Festival in Barcelona, which is where I caught up with him to talk analog synths, being on his own label, craft work, the appeal of electronics, punk, Depeche Mode, and what it is like being independent in 2022. Daniel Miller, uh, a legend of electronic music. Um, you've been here uh, at Ombra today playing with Sunroof. Uh, how was the gig? Yeah, well, what we play is improvised. So it's me and Gareth Jones. Um, we are Sunroof. And we play uh, improvised modular or improvised music using modular synths. And it's very unpredictable. We don't really prepare too much. Um, no, we enjoyed it. I mean, I have hardly had a moment to speak to Gareth after the show. But yeah, we enjoyed it. There weren't too many people here. But those who are here seem to like it. So... And we just enjoy playing, so it's fine. Improvised, but not a jam session. A crucial difference, right? What, what is the difference for you? Good question. Um, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I just associate jam sessions with... It's more, it's more of a perception than a reality. It's, it's kind of a jam. But I think of jam sessions as kind of like rock bands playing for five hours, noodling away in the you know, on drugs. <laughs> Fish. <laughs> well, I'm, no, I'm not going to name any names. <laughs> I, I named it, yeah, that was me, that was me being rude. So you, you met Gareth, uh, your partner in Sunroof, in 1982, um, and you, your first remix, I think, was 1997, under the Sunroof name. Yeah. Why so long to, A, do your first remix, and B, you know, make an album? Well, we, Gareth and I worked together as co-producers of uh, three Depeche Mode albums. And um, that was really how I met Gareth, because we were looking for a really good engineer. And we really hit it off back in those days, kind of, we wanted somebody unconventional. And he's certainly unconventional. And so, um, and you know, we went our separate ways, not separate ways, but he's, prof- you know, he's a professional producer. I was running a record label. We'd never had much time to do stuff. We never really thought about doing a remix. I can't remember exactly how it came about, but somebody asked us to do one. And so we thought, yeah, let's do it. And then rather than have kind of a long name remix by blah, 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 we thought, and just Sunroof just came out of the air somewhere. I don't, I don't really know the name so, Sunroof, yeah. So if this is a slightly ignorant question Mm -hmm. but obviously um you started off making music and then mute the label became very very big were you all and there was a time when you released less music Mm -hmm. were you always making music in the background or was there a time when you didn't you mean at which which period are you talking about after starting the label or early before starting uh, after starting the label, when Mute got really, really big and, you know, you had Depeche Mode and everything to, mm-hmm. to cope with. Yeah. I always mucked about at home. I would, you know, just for my own pleasure completely. But even then, there were quite long periods when I did nothing just because I was so busy and, I did, you know, 
it's hard to make that switch from running a company to making music sometimes, mental switch. But um, it was always there. I've always had a facility to make music at home. And um, it kind of came and went, I would say. But then, I guess, about 10 years ago or so, I started doing more and more because of, I was really fascinated by the Eurorack modular systems. And it somehow became more accessible to make, from my, from my point of view, more inspiring, let's say. What is the appeal of analog synths? Well, first of all, when we talk about Eurorack, Modular, they're not all analog. There's digital modules, there's analog modules. Um, I'm not a purist by any straight, a purist about analog or digital. It really depends about the tools and what I want to try and achieve, and I'll just use whichever tools that that can uh, can help me achieve those. Um, and it depends because there's digital modules that don't make a sound, but they're kind of utilities, they're called. Uh, you know, envelope generators or logic controls. So there's no, there's no particular reason why you shouldn't use digital tools for controlling things. But they're also digital filters, digital oscillators, and they, you know, and they're getting better and better. I mean, they're getting really good now with the technologies. So I don't, if I if I find something I like, I'll use it. I don't ask myself if it's digital or analog, really. Have you ever got into things like Max MSP, though, though those are programming languages? That, that always seems to blow me away. No. Um, life's too short. I mean, I, you know, I've used some of the MS, Max MSP, Max for Live, some of the modules they make for Mac or plugins they make for Max for Live. Um, but I've never, I've never attempted to build anything. I did a little bit in the beginning with Reactor, um, which, which was great, but... Reality is that um, I don't have that much time to make music and I really just don't want to spend too much time building stuff because a lot of, especially in modular and Eurorack, there are a lot of people who build their own modules as well. Um, but I'm a bit cack-handed with a soldering iron, so I wouldn't really trust myself to do that. Now, I'm, I just wanted my music time. I'd rather be making music than making tools. When you started off making electronic music back in the, the 70s, Presumably you had to be quite good with a soldering iron because things would go wrong? Well, no. I mean, I mean, I, uh, my first synth was a, a Korg 700S, which was the cheapest at the time. I bought, well, I bought it secondhand. It was about the cheapest synth you could get. But it's very reliable. It's, I've still got it and it still works. I mean, I did a bit of soldering just to, for not with the synth, but some other stuff. But um, no, I, I'm not. I'm not very technical in that sense. You know, I'm not a. I'm, I'm not an engineer in that. You know, I'm just just like playing around with them. You know. The second Sunroof album will be announced by the time this goes out. It's being announced uh, next week. If you say so. <laughs> That's what they tell me. Um, so I, I think we we can talk about it. It's coming out in in February. Um, what can you tell me about the the second album? Um, well, the, well. It, it, the process of doing it was fairly similar to the first album, and that process was, um, as I said, well, we live in different. Gareth and I live in different countries. We're both pretty busy, so we have to plan a time when we get together. So we we we, we had a kind of a little manifesto. We said we'll only play, we'll only record for three hours. Well, we'll get together for three hours, and in that time, we'll record pieces. Um, again, completely improvised. So we start off with 
uh, no patches, so we start patching when we get together. We wanted to do relatively short pieces because we did what we didn't want to do was do like forty-minute pieces and then have to edit them, and and also because when you when you edit, you lose a bit of the flow of the piece. As an so, so that was another thing was like to do short tracks, not like massively long jams. Um, uh, we tried to do it as much as possible in different studios, which we did on the first album. But in the second album, we just did it in at my place and at Gareth's place. Um, but I think that the main point of it was that we we did we arrived at the studio without a plan or without a musical idea. It was just like start patching, and if, when it starts sounding good, let's do something with it. You know. Was that quite stressful, or did you just think, well, if nothing comes out today, then we won't release it? Yeah, it wasn't in the slightest. There's no pressure from the record company or from each other. No, we just, no, it was the opposite, actually. It was really relaxing and, and, and pleasant. Yeah, of course, there was some stuff we did which was we didn't like, but and that didn't get on the record, but there, were others, but there was enough to put on the record that we liked. So, yeah, no, not stressful at all. Very relaxed, actually. Talking of record company, you are literally on your own <laughs> record label. Yeah. I mean, what, what is that like? Um... It's a bit weird. I mean, when we have a marketing meeting and sunroof comes up, I say, okay, where's the, you know, what's going on? Where are the posters? What's, you know, what, why aren't we on Radio 1? Uh, you know, like, no, it's fine. You know, it's, the whole the whole point of this project is to be relaxed about it and not pressured. I mean, we understand, as artists, we understand the, um, we have, we, we don't have ridiculous expectations for sales or, we got some nice press and stuff like that. Um, we did a lot of interviews actually on the first record, but it's 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 we do it for fun, and you know it's not our career. It's neither of our careers. It's just you know just fun, really. I'm really interested. I wanted to ask when you first came across a synthesizer. Going right back, what was it that attracted you to it? Well, I was always always from the age of about twelve or thirteen. I played guitar. Um, I was in a band at school, like so many people. We were the, like, with a lot of bands at, at, our, at the school at the time, and all the kind of really good musicians came together, and we were the worst musicians in the class. So we got together. We had a lot of fun. Um, but for me personally, I, I mean, I'm a really bad guitar player, and I had quite a lot of ideas, but I couldn't kind of transfer them to my hands. Um, and also being in a band, you know, everybody was had different tastes and stuff like that. There was band, even at that level, there was band politics. And, this, and I thought, you know, I suppose I was trying to think at the time, well, how could I do this on my own? And then I heard electric, started to listen to electronic music on the radio or, you know, I suppose my first electronic piece that I was conscious of was the Doctor Who theme. And, uh, you know, and producers like... Uh, Joe Meek, who used a lot, it wasn't street speaking electronic, but used like weird techniques. And um, I suppose I just thought I could really express this, a synthesizer way of expressing some of my musical ideas and I could do it on my own. I often wonder how much incredible influence the Doctor Who theme must have had. You know, if you're hearing that in, you know, 1969 or, or whatever. Earlier than that. I mean, I was very young. I mean, I'm, I wasn't, you know, I was like in my early teens, I think, when Doctor Who came out. I mean, I didn't know what it was. 
it just sounded so amazingly different. And so it's just like really the sounds grabbed me completely, you know. Um, it just sounded, I didn't really know it was a synthesizer or what it was at the, at the time. But it made a big impression on me. Am I right that Mute once released a double CD album of Doctor Who music, is that right? Yeah, well, we did at a certain point, um, we licensed some of the Radiophonic Workshop, uh, the Radiophonic, BBC Radiophonic Workshop, who did the Doctor Who, they did all the music pretty much with BBC programmes at that time. And the BBC would, I don't know, there was some legal thing and they needed to get rid of it somehow for a while. And uh, so we licensed it. We did quite a few compilations, yeah. But that, unfortunately, that license has run out now, so we're not doing it anymore. But it was, yeah, it was an honour to do it, you know, really. Can I ask, are you still a fan of Doctor Who? I haven't watched it, no. I mean, it's not that I'm not a fan or not a fan. I just haven't watched it for, like, since the, probably since the first or second series. Your first record, Warm Leatherette, was a really big underground hit and people still listen to it today. Yeah. Why do you think it connected so much? I've got no idea. I mean, I, I you know, it's, it's I, I think when it came out, it was a really, really good time for it to come out because um, I think punk, the whole, you know, punk spirit, not so much talk about punk music. Punk spirit was, I think, opened a lot of people's minds to different kinds of music, and I think a lot of people were inspired to to search for new music. So, by 1978, when it came out, I think there were people just looking for stuff like that, and it was sounded, I mean, it sounded different to a lot of things that were out there. And you know, very soon afterwards, or just around that time, the first Human League single, first Cabaret Voltaire single, came out. You know, so. Uh, it was a very good, you know, very good moment. And then a couple of years later, you know, bands like Soft Cell and Depeche, and it was a, yeah, it was a good time. I, I have a theory that it, one of the reasons it, it, it has lasted so much was because it's so beautifully simple. It sounds like anyone could do it, but absolutely, you, you know, I, you, well, you could because you did, but like, I, I couldn't. I mean, do you think that's something in that? I think it's very direct. I, you know, I... I, I I mean, it's hard to say, really. Um, I mean, yeah, it's very direct. It didn't use any classic kind of electronic music uh, techniques because I didn't know how to do it. Maybe if I had more experience, they would have done, but I didn't. Uh, I, I didn't. So I just got the sounds that I liked. And I think because of that, maybe they're, they're a bit more timeless than some of the um, some other records. I can't really say. It's, and I can't, you know... All these things about how music connects with people, whoever it is, is, is kind of a, a weird kind of chemistry that I don't really, I don't really even want to explore it too much. Because you, then you might think about it too much, and the, the magic might go. Or yeah, I mean, you know, you know, why have bands like Depeche Mode been so incredibly successful? Almost from the very beginning, they had this special connection with their live audience. And they didn't. When the, I mean, the first time I saw them play, they didn't. They were just standing there. They didn't do anything. Dave wasn't the Dave he is today. He was just standing there, like. And yet they had a connection to the audience, and that's something that you can't. You don't want to go too deep into that and analyze it too much, you know. I, well, I don't. Some people might might do, but I don't. It's just like because then you try to make something work. That it, if you have to try to make something work, then it's not going to work in that sense because it's got to be natural. Uh, if I may ask something, it's very personal for me. Um, your second 
record as a normal was live at West Runton Pavilion. I used to live in West Runton, which is this arse town, like, on the North Norfolk coast, population 500 or something. And I remember when I found out that in the 70s it had an amazing venue, like Sex Pistols and The Cure and Dead Kennedys, all kinds of people. Do you have any memories of, of playing there? Well, it was part of a tour. Quite a lot of rough trade, rough trade record shop organised a tour. Um, well, at the time it was the shop and the label. And um, they had stiff little fingers were headlining. And there was Essential Logic, Laura Logic, and uh, me, uh, uh, Robert Rental and me. And we, yeah, I mean, it was crazy, a crazy tour, you know, I mean, really crazy. I mean, the thing about it was that it was supposed to be kind of, kind of egalitarian in a way between the three bands, because when it was planned, none of them were very successful. But then Stiff Little Fingers, during the almost like during the tour, became like they had hits and a chart album and stuff. So it was really a Stiff Little Fingers tour with Laura Logic and and we were not playing punk rock music. So we got some pretty abuse. We had some pretty rough times with the audience, I have to say. But that's something I find quite interesting that the punk was meant to be about you know being new and being different, and yet. Um, it seemed that very very quickly, like, rules were established, you know, so, like, people didn't like suicide or something like that. Was that a bit weird? No, I mean, it was predictable. Um, I mean, I think the people who were maybe involved with punk, you know, t- towards the beginning were very, you know, I think they, I mean, obviously John Lydon with Public Image and, like, you know, later on with Public Image, was really pretty interesting, nothing like punk rock, but still very much punk attitude, you know, and people like the Banshees. But I think, I don't know, it became a fashion, and when things become a fashion, fashion has rules, and I don't know. Don't ask me. But, yeah, they didn't like us anyway. But it was it was, it was good because there was always, like, one person who came backstage after said, oh, that really blew my mind. What do you do? How do you do this? You know. Whatever they went on to do afterwards, I got no idea. But it's nice if you get to one person. I think that's uh, uh, you know it makes it worthwhile. You've got a mute showcase here at Ombre Ryan. Well, it's not exactly. A sh- it's not. They invited. They they invited us to. They invited us to invite some artists, and um, and we. I came up with a list of, of potential artists, and they and. They said yes, no, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, because the festival's quite, you know, not specific, you know, it's quite. So um, one of our new artists, Jacko Jacko, who's a brilliant electronic musician and DJ, she just played. And Robert Gohl, uh, who, who was half of DA, Deutsche Amerikanische Freundschaft, we released his records a long time ago, and uh, they, they thought that was a good idea. So that was it. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a showcase exactly. A little mini curated couple of hours. How do you keep on finding new music for Mute? Well, it's not, first of all, it's not just me who's looking for the music. I suppose, um, I mean, I guess as I get, I'm not that connected to new music because I'm so focused on the music that we're making. Um, but of course, there are people. At the, you know, there's one other guy, Joff, who's who's really does the A and R. We do it together, but he's more like 
checking out things. And then we figure it out. If we want to do it, we do it. I mean, but we don't sign many artists, really, because we're you know, a relatively small company with a really strong roster. Um, but having said that, in the last year, weirdly in the pandemic, we signed more artists than we have for a long time. So, And um, what's it like running an independent record label in 2022? I mean, we hear horror stories. Is it really hard? Well, yeah, it's always been hard. Whether you're, whether you're, if you, if you're, un, if you're not doing well, it's hard, and if you are doing well, it's hard. Um, but, the, but it's worth it because it's so, it's so much, so much kind of pleasure in it as well. Work. I mean, I love working with artists and trying to develop them, and the whole team at Mute is the same. I mean, it's, I, I wouldn't call it hard. I mean, it's not like, it's not like uh, you know, being a nurse or an emergency ward or. Uh, you know, working working down a mile. I mean, it's 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 a lot. It's hard. It's it's a lot of work and uh, uh, some pressure, but generally speaking, it's uh, it's enjoyable. You know, I would say. And um, I think obviously uh, you became uh, you sold me originally to EMI in in two thousand and two, which always seemed like an interesting move. Was that did it work well together? Um. It worked well for a while. I mean, it never worked badly. I have to say that it's a bit of a longer story, you know, but um, it never worked badly. Um, I think the people at EMI were very respectful, but EMI were in a lot of trouble at that time and they were bought. And that, and once when they, be, it's not, it wasn't so much the people at EMI, but the people who bought it, I mean, they were in financial trouble. And uh, so, it changed a lot, so I, I got out. And technically, there was a moment when Kraftwerk were on mute, I believe? Yeah. I mean, they were, yes. They were. I mean, the, <laughs> so there was a label with e, within EMI called EMI Records, not the EMI group of companies. And Kraftwerk was signed to them. And there was, and there was, and but then EMI, then the group EMI closed the label down because it, for whatever reason, I can't know. The main guy who was, who was the marketing guy who had the closest contact with Kraftwerk came to work for Mute. And so the logical thing was for them to transfer to us. But we didn't put out any new records. It was all, it was all about remasters and stuff, which I was very, obviously, incredibly proud to have done. But, I wouldn't say they were on. They were on mute. They were released by mute, but we never had that kind of A and R relationship. Thankfully, I God, I wouldn't have liked to do that. Not just because they're my, you know, one of my heroes, you know. So, um, you're DJing later. I saw. I'm pretty sure I saw you DJ at Sonar. I don't know, eight years ago. I think it was outside. During, yeah, during the yes, I, yeah. I DJed. I DJed a couple of times at Sonar. Um, but yeah, that, that I, I was on. I, I was on before Richie, I think. That was one time, and then another time I was... Yeah, I, support, I supported Richie, uh, Richie Horton, um, one time, and then another time I was uh, DJing, yeah, just on the in, outside, yeah. It's great, I enjoyed it very much. What uh, is your set tonight going to be like, or do you have no idea? No, I, well, the thing is, I haven't DJed for, since the pandemic. And I was, DJ, I was DJing fairly regularly before that, basically playing techno. Um, and 
So I've had to kind of revise my, have to like, it's like riding a bike, but you need a, a, me to practice a little bit beforehand. So basically I'll be playing techno music. Yeah. I'm going to ask one one more thing. You've been very generous with your with, with your time. Um, you said I think you've never been to Primavera. No, I have been to Primavera. Oh, right. Um, but it was it was quite a long time. I can't couldn't tell you, but maybe seven or eight years ago, we had Swans playing, and Liars playing. Yeah, that was so. That was my time. That was my one time there. Yeah. Are you going to go in twenty twenty three for Depeche Mode? Probably. <laughs> and. I'm sure you can't say very much, but what can we expect from what what, what? what can we expect? I've never seen Depeche Mode. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, they play their own massive stadium gigs. They're a massive band. You know, they've been enormous for you know, 20 years, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, what what can what can what can I expect from them? What's it What's it going to be like? It's going to be great songs, great sound. Um. Uh, Big performance from Dave as the front person. Um, it's going to be different because, as you know, Andy Fletcher passed away a few months ago now. So that's you know it's, good, it's going to be different in that sense, slightly different atmosphere. I don't know exactly how it's going to be, but the band of the remaining members of the band are very determined to to continue the, with continue with the project because because Andy was, I mean. He was, in a way, he was a you know driver in many ways of the of the band, and I think that that something that they've taken on and want to really continue. What else can you expect? Good, great visuals, but Anton Corbin visuals, um, you know, great songs. What can I say? Some of the old hits, some of the new to be hits. I don't actually know what I, I don't know what the set list. I don't think they know what the set list is yet. But um, I guess they work. It's always difficult because the longer you go, the more choice there is. And uh, you have to this balance between new stuff and old stuff, you know. Well, hope you do. You do make it, and come and come and say hello if you do. I will. Thank you very much. Look forward to it. Thanks very much. Thank you. Cheers.